morning, friends. I'm John, one of the pastors here at Calvary. I'm so glad you're here with us as we continue our series, Marking Up the Book of James Together. Obviously, we're having a little technical difficulties over here with this projector, so we'll give you half off admission today since only 50% of them are working. Okay, you know that moment when you're in class or in a lecture and your teacher says, write this down. This is important. You're going to want to remember this. It might show up on the final. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Sorry to trigger any memories. Some of you hear that and think, I'll remember it. (laughs) I tried that, and I don't recommend it. Some of you, when your professor or teacher says that, you you know, open your backpack as quickly as possible to find a scrap of paper to write down whatever it is they're about to say. Those of you who are sitting in the front row, when your teacher says that, you think, I'm already writing everything down. I take very copious notes. So you underline it, or you highlight it, you draw attention to it. Because if a teacher says, this is important, take note of this, you're going to want to remember it. This is the moment that we find ourselves in in the book of James. James says to the people that he's teaching, to his readers, take note of what I'm about to tell you. You've got to remember this. So if you have your journal or maybe your Bible, open it with me to James chapter 1 and verse 19. James is in the second half of the New Testament of your Bible. It's right after the book of Hebrews and right before the letter uh, called 1 Peter. So we're in James chapter 1, verse 19. By the way, how cool is it that we get to learn from James, the brother of Jesus? Like, he has a totally unique perspective on who Jesus was and what he was like. There's very little that we know from the scriptures about what Jesus was like as a child. But James grew up with him, got to see his older brother grow in wisdom and stature and favor before God and men. Imagine what it was like for James to get to witness Jesus become wiser and wiser and increasingly influential throughout his life. He would have unique insight into what Jesus was like and what he taught. It's incredible to know, too, that, that at one point in the ministry of Jesus, James and his brothers didn't believe in him. And then something changed. Paul tells us, who knew James, that after Jesus had died and risen again, he appeared to 500 people, and one of them was James, his brother, which must have been an amazing encounter. And because of his experience of seeing his brother who had come back from the dead, James went from not believing in Jesus to eventually losing his life because of what he believed about him. So we've come to this spot in our study in the book of James where he says, I want you to know this. What I'm about to tell you is important. Pay attention. So you found your way to James chapter 1 and verse 19, which says, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce 
the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Know this, James says. In some translations, it says, take note of this. This is important. I want you to remember my beloved brothers and sisters. So in these three verses today, 1920 and 21, we're going to take note of three insights from James. The first is an attitude. The second is an action. And finally, there's an award. An attitude, an action, and an award. Let's start by marking up verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, he says, you might underline this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let every person, James says, this, this is for everyone. What I'm about to share with you is a universal truth. And as we'll see, it's so relevant and important to each of our lives. Now, when we notice the phrase beforehand, my beloved brothers and sisters will remember that this letter that James is writing is written to a group of believers, to people who are Christians, who are followers of Christ. So this attitude that James is talking about, this mindset, is one that is meant for us if we follow Jesus, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our upbringing or our natural tendencies, we're called in our attitude to be, circle this, quick to hear. Quick to hear, quick to listen. I think we all know that this attitude could be helpful if more people lived by it in our society. Everybody is so eager to shout their opinions so worried that if they're not the first one to get their opinion out there, that theirs, theirs might be crowded out by another opinion. Platforms like Twitter and Facebook and comments on news articles have given everybody a vehicle, a place to be able to share their opinions with a global audience, some of which are less helpful than others. But James says, don't miss this. Our attitude, if we follow Jesus is meant to be one of humility, and we ought to be quick to hear. I'm sure most of us have heard the phrase active listening. That was coined by a clinical psychologist in the 1950s named Carl Rogers. He and a team of researchers had spent the 1940s trying to discover why it was that some counselors, some psychologists, some psychiatrists were better at helping people solve their problems than others. And essentially, they discovered this truth from James, that if we were just more quick to hear, eager to listen to other people, that we're more helpful. There's no question that being quick to hear helps us in our personal relationships. But perhaps what's on the mind of James is more than just a conversation between two people. Look up at verse 18. Perry led us in a great message last week through this verse that says, of his own will, that's God, 
he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of truth, beginning in verse 18 and then continuing all the way through verse 25, James develops this theme of focus around the word of God, the word of truth. It comes up several times. We're going to see next week about how we're called to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And he talks about the law of God. And as important as it is for us to be quick to hear another person, how much more important is it for us to be quick to hear God's word? Quick to hear. That's like ready to hear. Eager to hear. There's a readiness and an eagerness that we're all called to have as we come to God's word. In Matthew 17, Jesus was with three of his closest friends, and God spoke from heaven and said about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the call on our life, to listen to God's voice. There are times when I'm reading the Bible that I would describe myself as being very quick. Quick to get to the next chapter. Quick to check my time of Bible reading off my list for the day. Quick to get to the text that interrupted what I was reading. But when I am quick to hear God's voice, those are the moments I find when he speaks. When I'm eager, I think I'm more likely to experience his presence. When I'm ready to hear from him, that's when I hear his voice. Verse 19 goes on to say that we're also meant to be slow to speak. Some of us are thinking of that person right now that we would like to share this verse with. It's the coworker who dominates every meeting that we're a part of. We think maybe if we just slide this across the table, they'll get the point. Or the friend who finishes every one of our sentences. Or the neighbor who constantly interrupts us. The book of Proverbs is kind of blunt when it drives this point home in Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. <laughs> That's fairly clear. James says we're called to be slow to speak. Silence. Space. Being slow to speak can do wonders for a conversation or for a meeting. And also, as we long to hear God's voice. God spoke to Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, on top of a mountain in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. And in this moment, it's incredible how the voice of God is heard by Elijah. It says, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The still small voice of God is hard for us to hear if we're not slow to speak. If we fill every moment with words and sound, what are we missing? Perhaps the sound of a low whisper where God is speaking, trying to get our attention. There are a lot of people in our world who are wishing they had been slower to speak earlier in their lives. Social media posts are now being unearthed years later and people's careers and lives are being ruined because they weren't as slow to speak as maybe they wish they had been. How many of us can just remember something that we wish we could take back (laughs) and it just hadn't left our mouth? So our attitude of humility, James says, is one where we're called to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. Anger has clearly been on the rise in our world for years, and it feels like it might be reaching its breaking point. Uncontrolled anger has severe consequences. One of those consequences is abuse, which manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. It could be physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. Some people try to cover over their anger with substance abuse. And all of these abuses hurt people. I mean, Look at how deep-seated anger has boiled over into a Russian invasion of the Ukraine. In our own country, anger over ideological differences is causing families to be divided, churches to be split, and in the midst of it, our country feels increasingly fractured, and it's all being fueled by anger. So what is our calling? as followers of Jesus. You might remember we've described this series as sort of a lesson on how to be a Christian, not just be called a Christian. There's a difference. And if we want to be Christ followers, what does it mean for the ways that we live even when all around us anger is swirling? James says we're to be slow to anger, So if scrolling Twitter or watching cable news causes us to get angry, we might consider whether that's a healthy choice for us. Whether that helps us in what James calls us to do, to be slow to anger. Some people say, well, I'm angry about things that are worth being angry about. Okay. I would just caution us. 
Because James goes on in verse 20 to say, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He does a side-by-side comparison between the anger of man and the righteousness of God. Those are in contrast. It's the anger of man that leads to abuses. Paul says in a verse probably many of us know in Ephesians 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. When anger festers, we don't work through it in a healthy way, it often results in sin. So you might say, well, there are examples when Jesus is angry, so it's okay to be angry. Well, let's be careful. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. So let's look at an example of when Jesus was angry. Jesus never sinned, so let's see how he handled anger. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He's in the Sabbath, or in the, in the synagogue, in the temple on the Sabbath, and he looks around at the religious leaders who are trying to accuse him. They're trying to trap him. And the text says, he looks at them with anger, but simultaneously, he is grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, there was a man in the synagogue who had a, a disabled hand, and he reaches out and heals it which was a problem because he was breaking a law on the Sabbath, according to the religious leaders. And he was angry at them because they saw this healing as being a breaking of the law, when in fact it was a fulfillment of all that God had commanded people to do. So Jesus is angry and simultaneously grieved in his heart at the hardness of their hearts. Jesus is angry and yet has compassion for people. I think that's a challenge for many of us and is the difference between the anger of man. The anger of man boils over in personal attacks at people and abuses and sin. And so let us be careful that in our anger, we don't sin. How often is our anger mixed with compassion for people. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, the righteousness of God is James's way of describing the way that we live. We might call it God's will for our lives, our conduct, our behavior, our attitude. Be holy because I am holy, God says. So James says, our attitude is one of humility, where we're quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He goes on in the first part of verse 21 with an insight related to our actions. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away, he says. That could also be translated, take it off. The idea here is like taking off filthy, dirty, gross clothing. You spend a day out working in the mud, and you get home and you remove that and set it aside. You want to take it off as quickly as possible. So he uses the word filthiness to describe what we put away. 
Anger and other kinds of sins can result in a spiritual kind of filthiness that Christ followers are called to remove and throw away, to just get rid of. That's the action that James calls us. You guys have probably seen the television show called Dirty Jobs. Mike Rowe hosts it. The premise of the show is that he accompanies a person who has like some of the grossest jobs you can imagine and shows and spends a day doing that job and showing how disgusting it is to be something like a roadkill cleaner or a garbage collector or a sewer inspector. In one episode, he follows a medical waste disposal expert. Their job is to clean up and get rid of biohazardous medical waste. I imagine when their workday is over, they can't wait to take off their hazmat suit. And depending on what kind of biohazardous medical waste they were cleaning up that day, they may have to throw that suit away or burn it. That's the idea here, that sin is so filthy and dirty that as followers of Jesus who have been cleansed by his work on the cross, our continual desire is to take off sin as we face it, to put it away. And then when it creeps up, which it does over and over again throughout our life, we put it away again and turn back to Christ and remember that he and he alone has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. That action of putting away sin is something that we do over and over and over again throughout our life. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Uncontrolled, unregulated sin can grow and fester in our lives, just like weeds in a garden. And then they can choke out the fruit that God intends to produce in our lives. And just like a gardener has to constantly control the weeds that are growing everywhere, putting away rampant wickedness is something that we're called to do regularly so that Sin doesn't get out of control. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion together. And as we're preparing our hearts and minds for that moment, it's probably good for us to think about the weeds we all have in our lives. We all have them. I have them. We all have sinned. And some of us today have come into church feeling burdened with sin. It's in the top of our mind. Maybe it happened last night, early this morning. Some of us are here this morning and we haven't actually thought about sin in our life for a while. And before we eat this meal together later, why don't we just take a few moments right now in the middle of the message to just confess to God what's on our hearts. He might be bringing to your heart or to your mind something that he's calling you to put away.
to take off, to turn away from. And his promise to you is that if you confess your sins, he's what? He is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, we just want to take a moment right now where we are to come before you. Perhaps you've brought to our minds sin that's in our heart. We confess that to you now. We thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for your love for us. Okay, I just tricked the worship team. Sorry, that was an unplanned moment there. I didn't mean that my message was over. I just wanted to take a moment. My apologies. Sometimes the spirit moves in unplanned ways. If you just confessed a sin before the Lord, here's the picture I want you to have in your mind. If you're covered in a coat that's filthy and you see Jesus, he doesn't turn up his nose at you. He doesn't ask you to take a shower before you come near. He runs to you and he embraces you. And he takes that dirty jacket off for you. And he puts it away. And then he helps you turn away from it. And he walks with you through that. Because he is faithful. And he is just. To forgive you of your sins. And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you've never asked Jesus in your life to cleanse you from your sin, I want you to know he's not ashamed of you. He is not grossed out by anything you have ever done or will ever do. He went to the cross in your place, knowing every single sin that you would ever commit, past, present, future. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he accomplished on the cross what only he could do so that you might be clean, free from filth and rampant wickedness and free to follow him. And as we regularly have those moments in our life where we have to put away sin, Jesus is with us in it. Okay, we've seen James give us an insight on our attitude our action, and now in the second half of verse 21, an award. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Our award is the word of God. Not because we deserve it, but because, you might circle this word, we 
receive it because God gives it to us. The word of God is a gift from God. We aren't naturally born knowing everything that we need to know about God and ourselves. We have to hear God's word. And when we do, there is this supernatural work of God that happens when we receive it. He implants it in our hearts. He promised that he would through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is what God said. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what James means by implanted. God puts his word in our hearts, and it grows. It's nourished as we hear it. It takes root as we live it out. And this award develops and finds its way to every part of our life. And then it bears fruit for God's purposes. The good works which he planned beforehand that we might walk in them. And this whole process is done by the work of God. Remember when Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. When God plants the word in our hearts, he's faithful to make it grow and to flourish. And his word is powerful because James says at the conclusion of verse 21, it is able to save your souls. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When we first believe the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, what he did, why he died, and that he rose again and lives forever. When we believe that, we are born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's one way to understand the way the Bible talks about salvation. The other way is there is this process throughout our life where we are being saved. We sometimes call that sanctification. I think that process is what's in the mind of James here at the end of verse 21. How the implanted word of God, which grows and flourishes in the heart of every believer, does its intended work in our hearts so that we might be God's workmanship in in Christ Jesus, continually saved, if you will, by the word of God because the word is living and active. It's constantly doing its work in us. It's reminding us of what's true and correcting us when we're in the wrong and drawing us back to the love of God. Because the word of God is able to save our souls. We probably don't think about our souls as often as we should. We think about our bodies a lot. Like, Am I eating healthy? Am I exercising regularly? Am I sleeping well? We feel it when we're hungry. We know it when we're thirsty. But how often do we think about the condition of our souls, our spiritual state? 
Let us not neglect our souls. They are the most important thing about us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? One of the reasons why we take communion together is because it's an opportunity for our souls to be fed and nourished. Just as we feed our bodies with food, sometimes after a particularly healthy meal, you feel really nourished. Communion is meant to nourish us spiritually, to remind us of what Jesus did on our behalf, the price that he paid. The first communion meal was the night before Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples around a table, and he took some bread, and he blessed it, and said to them, this bread is my body. I'm going to give it to you. They probably had no idea what he meant. No idea that in 24 hours, his body would be on a cross, experiencing the physical pain that our bodies experience, excruciating physical pain, a public execution, where the body of the Son of God, Jesus, would be seen by anyone who walked by in his agony. And as his body was experiencing incomprehensible pain. Did he get angry? No, what did he say to God? He said, my father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While he was being murdered, Jesus had compassion on the people who were killing him. So he takes this bread and says, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he said, take and eat in remembrance of me. And after they had eaten, he took a cup, blessed it and gave thanks for it. And said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant had required bulls and goats to be sacrificed and slaughtered and blood to be spilt continually over and over again to forgive the sins of the people and the sins of the priest and even unintentional sins that people had committed. But Jesus in that moment institutes a new covenant where the once for all death of Jesus Christ 
is the final sacrifice for sin. And so he says, as often as you're together, take and drink in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we remember your death together. And we bless you for it. We give you thanks that you accomplished what we never could, the salvation of our souls. I pray for the soul of every friend that's here today. I pray that you would do the work in their souls that only you can. That you might bring peace where it's needed, courage where it's required, Strength where there's weakness. That you might draw any wayward soul back to you, Lord Jesus. We need your help to live. And we thank you that you walk alongside us, that you uphold us and care for us, that you lead us and minister to us. And as we worship you, Jesus, we pray you would be glorified. That as we sing praise, you would be praised in heaven. But as we proclaim together that the Son of God died in our place, glory and honor would come to you, Lord Jesus. Pray all of this in your powerful name. Amen.